Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Heather and I have this game that we play when we're driving around downtown, especially in the summer months, where um, if we see a guy who's topless and he's kind of well-built, I take the role of the purity police. Or if he's wearing the summer shawl. Do you know what the summer shawl is? The summer shawl is a guy who, like, is wearing a t-shirt and he takes his arms out and he rolls it up so that the only thing uh, coming through is, is his head coming out through the top of the shirt. But from his neck down, he's, he's basically topless. I call that the summer shawl. So when Heather and I are driving around downtown and we see a guy like that, um, I'll stop and I'll go, hey, don't you look at him. Or we'll, we'll be going along and, and, I'm, and I'm driving. I'll be like, hey, bounce your eyes, missy. The reason that that's fun for us is because there is a really good chance that Heather would not have noticed uh, the guy in the first place, first of all. But second of all, because uh, a lot of people actually grew up in, in churches like, like Heather did, where that was, that was purity. And, and there would be some who would call that a form of purity culture. You know what I mean by purity culture? And purity culture may have begun in the 1990s with Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He said, I think many girls are innocently unaware of the difficulty a guy has in remaining pure when looking at a girl who is dressed immodestly. Yes, guys are responsible for maintaining self-control, but you can help by refusing to wear clothing designed to attract attention to your body. So purity culture used these different like metaphors in order to express why true love should wait. Because if you don't, a person who doesn't wait for marriage is like chewed bubble gum or is like uh, like a half-eaten cookie, uh, a half-eaten lollipop, or is like a rose that has been passed from one person to another. And every time a person sniffed the rose, another petal fell off. How many of you heard something like that, a message like that? Okay, yeah, lots of hands going up. So what people who grew up or, or sort of survived purity culture learned was a few things, and, and you could boil it down to this. You could say virginity is basically the same thing as holiness. Purity culture taught us that sexual failure will ruin a marriage, that nobody will want you if you're not a virgin, that you give a piece of yourself away to each person that you're sexually involved with. It taught us that a boy's purity is a girl's responsibility, and uh, his impurity is, is probably a girl's fault. And purity culture taught us that a girl's sexuality is something that she should keep hidden. It's okay for boys, it's not okay for girls. Now there's probably other messages that were embedded in purity culture, but Christians are beginning to speak about the problems that are sort of inherent in purity culture. One of those people is Jen Pollock Michael, and she says that uh, however well-intentioned purity culture might have been, it was also guilty of gross errors. It made Christian purity a function of sexual hi history and behavior, and not spiritual rebirth. I just think that's so helpful. And there was a reaction within the church, kind of a reaction against purity culture that some people might call sex positivity. There are a, a whole lot of Christians who are sort of endorsing it and, and getting on board with it. One is a Lutheran minister from the U.S. Her name is Nadia Boltzweber. And she was so impacted and, and harmed, she would say, and, and outraged by purity culture. She wrote a book about it recently called Shameless. She says, I'm here to tell you 
Unless your sexual desires are for minors or animals, or your sexual choices are hurting you or those you love, those desires are not something you need to struggle with. There's something to listen to, to make decisions about, to explore, perhaps have caution about, but struggle with, fight against, make enemies of? No. So that's, that's Nadia Boltzweber. She goes on actually in the book and she says that it's time for us to grab some matches, haul out our antiquated and harmful ideas about sex and bodies and gender into the yard. I am not suggesting we make a few simple amendments, she says. New wine and old wine skins ain't going to cut it. I'm saying let's burn it the F down and start over. And what's important to recognize at this point is that there are some who are coming from a purity culture background who treat sexual sin like it's the only kind of sin. And there are some who would say that scripture's boundaries on sex and sexuality are actually dangerous. And as we sort of re-engage with our table manners study, as we try to learn how are we going to be the church together individually and, and as a church, what does it mean for us to obey these things that, that God is saying to us? It's like, how do we cut through that noise? Because they're so powerful, aren't they? The messages are so powerful and so popular sometimes, sometimes so deeply embedded in our culture. And, and it's like, what else is there? And so I want to offer us a way forward, what I think is a gospel response. So here's where I'm going. I'm going to share what I see are the Corinthians' attitudes towards sexuality, Paul's answer, then his arguments for why we should flee sexual sin and honor God with our bodies, and then one observation as we close. Okay, so uh, the Corinthians' attitudes, Paul's answer, his arguments, and one observation. So there's really two things that the Corinthians were saying. The first is that sex is a right Sex is a right. In verse 12, I have the right to do anything. Or some versions say all things are permissible, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. And the thought here is like, hey, I'm free. I'm, in, I'm free in Christ to do what I want. And my body is my business. It's my property. I'll do whatever I want with it as long as I'm not hurting anybody. And if you think that no Christian talks that way, again, Nadia Boltzweber says, that the church is saying that the creator of the universe, God in the heavens above, he knows if you're, let's say, doing things you wouldn't do in front of your mom. And God is super disappointed. How ridiculous, she says. So in other words, you're free. It's your body. Do what makes you happy. And Paul is saying it's not about whether you're allowed to do this. It's not whether this is permitted. It's not whether you have the right if you think that like the ability to do whatever you want sexually, that's, if that's the, the, the proof that you're free, that's actually not true. Sexual sin actually masters you. It masters you. It takes control of you. One of the things that that means is that the single person, a single person who abstains from sex in order to honor Jesus, that person is not somebody to feel sorry for. In fact, that person is free. So, as it turns out, one of the attitudes we see among the Corinthians is this sex positivity, okay? It's right there in, in Corinth. They're just as sex positive as a lot of people that we would encounter today. The other attitude, though, that we see in Corinth is, is that sex is a necessity. Sex is a, is a sad necessity. Verse 13, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Well, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
Like, guys, don't be gross. God is high and holy. We don't trouble him with appetites like, like food and sex because these things are dirty. They're earthy. They're beneath him. And you may have heard that, that attitude. It sounds very, very, sounds very spiritual. It sounds very mature. It's actually not. And I'll tell you why. It's not the sex positivity folks who are seeing the prostitutes in Corinth. Let me say that again. It's not the sex positivity folks who are seeing the, the prostitutes in Corinth. It's the, it's the purity culture guys because they see sex as basically dirty. And that might surprise you, but listen, Augustine, years after this, Augustine, he, and he was right about so many things. He was such a huge influence on Western culture. But he taught that it is, it's impossible to have sex without lust. Okay? It's, it's, sex is impossible without lust. And so we should only have sex within a marriage for procreation and definitely not for pleasure. At the same time, we have these bodies, we have these appetites, and men can't be helped. Like, men can't help themselves. And so when you read Augustine, he actually reasoned that even though sex with a prostitute is a sin, like he admitted that that's wrong, even though sex with a prostitute is a sin, it's actually less sinful than for a a, a Christian husband and wife to have what you might call creative sex, okay? Like for for a, a Christian husband and wife to have you know, adventurous, creative sex, that's actually more sinful than for a guy just to go and see a prostitute. And like, that's what the Corinthians are saying. They're like, well, we need to keep our marriage bed pure. On the other hand, while well, men have these needs. And so the point here is just making excuses for men is not a new thing. Like treating God's gift of sex as a dirty thing, that's not new. It's ancient. It's ancient. It's an ancient form of purity culture. And what's interesting is that we have both of these attitudes, sex positivity and purity culture are right there in Corinth. And we want to see how did Paul answer that? His answer was this, verses 18 and 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Honor God with your bodies. Okay, two things. Flee sexual immorality. Honor God with your bodies. So what are we fleeing from? We're fleeing from sexual immorality, okay? Just to be clear, what we're fleeing from here is sexual sin, sexual immorality. He's not saying flee the opposite sex. So you may have heard like the the Mike Pence rule or the Billy Graham rule. This is a person who has resolved that they're not going to be alone um, in a room with a person who isn't his wife. And, And that may be necessary for you, depending on your sexual history, depending on how you're tempted. That might be helpful, it might be necessary, but that's not the instruction here, okay? Paul's instruction is flee sexual immorality. Like if sexual immorality is nearby, if it's likely to take you, if you're being tempted beyond what you can bear, the way out is for you to bail. Like don't play with this. Like there are, there are times when a Christian needs to stand their ground and sexual sin isn't one of those times. You should flee. That's, that's the instruction here. The other instruction is to honor God with our bodies. Okay, we, like, like Heather was saying earlier, we, we worship God with our bodies. We glorify God with our body. It's interesting because some people talk about the body like it is not actually really part of you. It's, your body is like the cage that contains your soul. And that's not Christian. 
Christians believe that to be a self, to be a person, means to be embodied. And there's a really helpful book that came out about this uh, recently by a, an author named Nancy Piercy. She says, Biblical morality places great emphasis on the fact of human embodiment. She says, respect for the person is inseparable from respect for the body. And what Paul's saying here is, we glorify God not in spite of these bodies, but with our bodies. We honor God in our bodies, with our bodies. We honor him. And, and so his answer to, the, to these Corinthians is, flee sexual immorality, honor God with your bodies. That's his answer. And from here, he's going to offer some arguments. He's going to offer five arguments for why flee sexual immorality, honor God with your body is the way forward. His first argument is resurrection. Resurrection. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So this is not hard to see. Sexual sin is a no because these bodies matter. We remember that Easter, uh, that, uh, that Jesus' body in some form, somehow that body was raised and so will yours. If you're a Christian, your destiny is not to like escape this body and live as a spirit in the clouds. And so Paul's saying, before you go and indulge in sexual sin, remember, you're going to have this body, some form of this body forever. And, and that's a really good argument for why we should flee sexual immorality. There's another argument that he makes, though. It's that we have union with Jesus. It's the fact of our union with Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Absolutely not, some versions say. Do you not know he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Twice here, Paul asks, don't you know? Like, don't you get it? We've covered this. Every Christian is a member of Jesus, is a, a member of Christ's body. Like you are the tangible presence of Jesus here on earth. That's what you are. You are the presence of Christ on earth. Where you go, Christ goes. When you go to the mall, Christ goes with you. When you go to a church to worship, Christ goes with you. When you visit a prostitute, Christ goes with you. And he's like, don't you know that? Don't you know that sex bonds you with the person that you share it with? That's why, Paul says, that's why in marriage we say the two will become one flesh. Not roommates, not best friends, although that's true. They will become one flesh. And you can't join your body to a prostitute and join your spirit with Christ. That just doesn't work. Because what you're doing is you're saying she can have your body, but she can't have your heart. And you're saying that God can have your heart, but he can't have your body. That doesn't work. And that's a, that's a strong argument for why we should flee sexual immorality and honor God with our body. He offers another argument, which is about how serious uh, sexual sin really is. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So this is an important verse because particularly within purity culture, we took this to mean that of all the sins, sexual sin is the worst kind. Like it's the absolute worst kind of all. And you might have heard that. 
what Paul is saying here, though, is it's not about whether it's not about whether it's worse or better, but I do think he's saying that it's unique. The question here is how is sexual sin uh, against your body? How is it a sin against your body while other sins are not? I mean, you could think about like drug abuse, you could think about overeating or violence, and we would probably say that those in some way are a sin against your body. But Paul's saying that all of those are sins out, are committed outside your body, but sexual sin is something you commit against your body. So what is it that's unique about sexual sin? And so what I want to say is that there are some things that are not unique about sexual sin and that there is something that is. So what's not unique about sexual sin is that it's, it's actually totally forgivable. Okay? If you have sinned sexually... If you have been sexually sinned against, it's forgivable. It is, it is, it's more than forgivable. The, 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 if, if you've been sexually sinned against, the, the hurt and that pain and that trauma, that actually can heal. It can heal. It can be taken. Its power over you can be broken. The guilt and the shame that you feel as someone who has, who, who has sinned sexually, that can be lifted and you can be forgiven and redeemed and you are a new creation in Christ. And so in that sense, sexual sin is not unique and it would be a mistake for us to make it seem like it is, like it's worse. It's not unique. It's forgivable. On the other hand, it is unique in another way though. And I think that this comes from what Paul was just saying about Christ and the body. I would explain it this way. All sin is idolatry, but not all sin is blasphemy. So let me say that again. All sin is idolatry, but not all sin is blasphemy. Every sin puts some created thing on the throne in God's place, and it's offering our worship to that thing, okay? Sexual sin doesn't just dethrone God. It does. Sexual sin doesn't just dethrone God. It replaces God with you as the one for whose pleasure the rest of us exist. And now that you're on the throne, now that you've taken God's place, what are you going to do next? Well, bad things, okay? Like unspeakable things. Like the sorts of things that our God doesn't do. There are stories in other cultures of the ways that their gods behave. Zeus, Molech, and, and, and Baal, like those gods, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty pervy, okay? Not our God. That's why we say this is blasphemy. It's telling something about God that's untrue and is evil. And I'm arguing that that harms you. I'm arguing that harms you, not just the person that you're sexually sitting with. It corrupts and it degrades and it distorts you and it harms your body and your personhood. And, and, and I actually can't think of another sin that so twists and so misrepresents God. And you just, you can't come away from that unharmed. Yes, sexual sin is serious. What makes it serious, though, isn't the sex. It's everything that goes along with it. And I think that that's a strong argument. It seems to me that's a strong argument for fleeing sexual sin and honoring God with our bodies. Paul's fourth argument is this, that you are God's home. You're God's home. Verse 19, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're the temple now. You're the place where people go to meet God. He's not speaking collectively. He's speaking individually. Every individual follower of Jesus is a temple in whom God's spirit lives. And because of that, 
Because of that, sexual sin has no business among you. Because your body is different. It's a different kind of space. It's sacred space. It's consecrated. And so again, flee sexual immorality. Honor God with your body. And Paul's last argument here is this. It's that you have a new Lord. You have a new Lord. Verse 19 to 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Seems to me this is a pretty good word for both the purity culture types and the sex positivity types. You know, back years ago when I was sometimes leading men's groups or youth groups and I was giving talks as part of purity culture, I loved this verse because this verse allowed me to say, listen, men, you are God's property. You are his slave and you have no right to do anything else but honor him. And I got to be honest, I regret that. And, you know, the, the, the sex positivity person reacts to that teaching. Of course they do. And they say, well, that's dangerous and that's toxic. And so we reject Paul and that's not better. What, I, what I'd say to the sex positivity folks here is, it seems to me Christians really only react to Paul's teaching on sex this way, but not other things. Let me give you an example. There is no such thing as a, as a Christian kind of money positivity. Like nobody in the church is saying, buy what makes you happy, spend what you want, don't let people tell you how to spend your money. There's no significant money positivity movement. There's no, there's no significant Christian food positivity movement where people are saying, eat and drink what you like, it's your body, don't let anybody tell you what should go in your body. But when it comes to the area of sex, we have a different approach. And Paul's saying, You guys, when Christ died for you, he didn't buy you into slavery to him. He bought you out of slavery. He bought you at a great price into the freedom that you were created to enjoy, into the freedom that you were meant for. So so enjoy it. Like this sexual sin, sexual immorality, this is not what you were made for. Don't settle for this. You were bought at a price. So Honor God with your body. He's your Lord. You have a new Lord. Honor him with your body. Now, as we move to wrap up, I want to just share what seems to me a kind of a helpful observation, which is this. So I don't know if you notice this or not, but you've got sex positivity folks and purity culture folks, and they're in the same church. Like, does that blow your mind? Like, how does that even work? How do these people belong in the same church together and not just constantly judge each other and fight. I think that that would be really hard. I think that that would be a mess. And, and I actually, I think that that's healthy. I think, I think that the liberal folks had to get used to the idea that the conservative folks were there watching them. And I think that the conservative folks had to get used to the idea that the liberal folks were kind of rolling their eyes at them. And they had to get used to it. And I think that they, people who disagree People who have strong, strong, sharp disagreements about sexual ethics can sit at the same table if Christ is Lord. Like no side in this discussion is allowed to say to the other side, you don't belong. You don't have a part here. You don't have a place at this table. You're not a, you're not a true Christian. No, no side can say that. And that's important for us to acknowledge. That's an important observation because we do that. Don't we do that? Like, it's not hard for me to empathize with the sex positivity folks. If I were a survivor of purity culture, if even more, if I were a survivor of sexual assault 
if I'd been harmed by another person, I think that I would feel pretty wounded. I'd feel pretty like disempowered. I'd, be, I'd feel pretty unsafe and probably angry, probably invisible. And I think that it would be really hard for me to separate the truth, the beautiful truth from all of these errors and reactions. And I think that what I would long for is to feel uh, heard and seen and, and, and beautiful and powerful again and free and important. I think that I would long for that. And that's not crazy. People are not crazy for wanting that. And so I don't blame anybody for, for siding with, with sort of sex positivity. I actually hope that lots of sex positive thinkers are going to be part of benediction over the years. I really, I pray that. Like, how cool would it be if Nadia Boltzweber joined Benediction? That would, I actually think that would be amazing. I would love that. I actually think that I've got a lot that I can learn from Nadia Boltzweber. But here's my, here's my invitation for the sex positivity folks, okay? I would say the sex positivity gospel has misled you. The sex positivity gospel says, God doesn't care what we do with our bodies after all. We're welcome at God's table. The reason that we can come to this table is because our sin isn't such a big deal after all. And it's like, no, that is not the gospel. The true gospel is better. The gospel says we are welcome at the Lord's table because we are sinners, of course we are, and our sin has been taken away. Our sin has been dealt with. That's why we're welcome. And Christ offers all the freedom and all the dignity and healing and belonging and empowerment that you could ever hope for. But he must be Lord of your life. He must be Lord of your entire life including your sexuality. It only works when Jesus is Lord of all of your life. And when he has the right to tell us, you guys, I love you, and sexual sin is not good for you. Sexual immorality only masters you. Put it down. Flee from this thing. Flee from it. But we also have an invitation for the purity culture folks. And I think, you know, I can empathize with purity culture too. I think one of the reasons purity culture appeals to so many people is because it gives us uh, rules and, and like objective standards, right? Like a skirt needs to be this long and uh, a tank top strap needs to be this wide. And we thought that those sorts of measures would make us holy and it turns out that they didn't. Those sorts of measures turn a lot of us into Pharisees as it turns out. And, and I'm saying we need to leave that behind. The gospel is so much better. You know what? I can actually live with it. I've decided I can live with it if purity culture types think that I don't take sin seriously enough. I, I'm fine with that. I actually think they don't take the cross seriously enough. Because purity culture says that the best thing, the best thing we can hope for is a, is a spouse who's a virgin. And the gospel says that in Christ, men and women, you are a new creation. A new creation. And so the church, we need to repent of that. We need to put that down and never pick it up. And, and, and Christ says, honor me in your body. Honor me in your body. And the church does not honor Jesus if we have anything above him as our ultimate goal, including sexual purity. 
need to wake up from that idolatry. It's an idol. So, so here's, my, here's my observation, okay? And this occurred to me this week for, for the first time. You know, if you take a Venn diagram of, of sex positivity folks or purity culture folks who also feel guilty over sexual sin, you know, you put those side by side, do you know what you've got? They look the same. Whether you're, you know, from the purity culture side or the sex positivity side, the overwhelming majority of you are still wrestling with this massive amount of shame and guilt over sexual sin that you committed or that was committed to you. And what that means is that, you know what a church is? A church is a bunch of sexually confused, sexually disordered people who've been sent into the world to share the love of Jesus among other sexually confused and other sexually disordered people. Let me say that again because I think it's important. A church is a bunch of sexually confused, sexually disordered people who are sent into the world to share the love of Jesus among other sexually confused and other sexually disordered people. I just think that's great, great news. That is great news. And so as I close, I want to share just a few questions that I hope you'll, you'll take with you. Maybe you can wrestle with these in your quiet times, in your devotions. Number one, what are some attitudes that you have towards sex that you'd rather not lay down even though you should? Number two, who are the people in our culture whose views on sex you would rather not deal with? Number three, where applicable, how are you preparing your children to live out their sexuality according to the way of Jesus? Let me give the last word now to Sam Albury. He says, God cares who we sleep with because he cares deeply about the people who are doing the sleeping. He cares because sex was his idea, not ours. He cares because misusing sex can inflict profound hurt and damage. He cares because he regards us as worthy of his care. That care isn't seen only in telling us how we should use sex, but also in how he makes forgiveness and healing available when we mess this up. Amen. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.